to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. Joanne had her bridal shower uh, this this just this, this weekend, and I tell you, we we got some really good stuff because you know I love to cook, and we got a new crock pot, we got a new confection toaster oven, we got an air fryer, which I'm looking forward to, and we got a uh, really big food processor. But the two things that excited me the most were probably the least expensive of everything. One is a this thing that you you stick in a pineapple and you core it, and the pineapple comes right out. And that's why I don't eat pineapple because it's always a, a pain in the butt to fix. But the best thing is a little wire contraption that holds taco shells. Now, I tell people, I make my own tacos at home because since I moved back from L.A., you know, I was spoiled on tacos out there. You know, Mexican food is in L.A. what Italian food is back east. But it's great because they always fall over. So it's the little things. It's my mindset that makes me happy. So anyway, it was a good weekend. We have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's a uh, singer, songwriter, just an all-around cool guy. And my guest is Martin Page. How you doing, Martin? I'm doing good, my friend. I've learned a lot about cooking by just listening to you there. What's that? I've just learned a lot about cooking. I'm just listening to you there. Now, you, you live in L.A. What was the difference for you? <laughs> no, but what's the difference for you when you moved from England to L.A. in food? Did you notice a big difference in food? Um, I suppose so. The, the thing I noticed the most was sun. Um, <laughs> I've been brought up, we've been brought up in the rain. So coming to L.A., it was like, oh, it's sunny every single day. And also, all the girls seem so much prettier. So I thought this is where I have to stay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So <laughs> I I was doing some reading on you, and uh, you you traveled a lot as a kid, I believe. You moved around, your family moved around a lot? Yeah, I did. Um, my father worked for British Aerospace, so um, he was involved with the Harrier jump jet, um, and he brought that to America uh, with British Aerospace, and NASA got involved with that. So my father's was coming to America before I was, but every now and then I would come across and stay at the American air bases with him as a, as a young lad. And that was usually down south, um, in South Carolina and Beaufort and, and Charleston and Savannah, where the air bases were. And so I heard incredible amounts of great soul music in a lot of ways that um, let, put a big impression on me on bass playing. And... Uh, I fell in love with those records, and really, I, I would imagine that was when my songwriting sort of started seriously around the age of sixteen or seventeen. But yeah, I was traveling around a lot with my father, so I was able to come to America and hear music early. Also, being an English lad, I was born in Southampton, but I eventually ended up going towards London, where um, most of the music and the publishers and the record companies were. So. Music actually um, led me wherever I had to go, I think. Now, do you think, and I, I talked to a lot of people who have performed, who have moved around a lot as a kid, that it's sort of an outlet for them to perform because, and now when they perform, it's easier because when you move around a lot, it's like an audition when you're a kid. If you go to a new school or go to new surroundings, do you think that has helped you in the long run in your performing? Yeah, I, you know, um, it's a very interesting question, but... Um, I did so much um, collaborating with so many writers when I came to Los Angeles in the 80s. So I got a, 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 real, a, a real quick apprenticeship in working with other people. I think that when I think about it now, it's when I was a young, really young lad, around 12 to 15 years old, I was playing soccer semi-professional in England. I was being signed to a professional team, Southampton. And in a lot of ways, I think that sort of prepped me because I was in a team, I was the captain, and I, you had to communicate. So... I think, looking back now, my, my early history is being pushed towards soccer and being in those teams helps me when I had to work with so many musicians in, in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, it preps you for everything. I mean, uh, collaboration through the 80s for me, because that's when I arrived in Los Angeles. I suddenly found myself in the rooms with all the people I idolized. So I was from England. I'd always studied American music, listened to Boss Gags, Doobie Brothers, The Tubes, Parliament, Bunkerbell, everything. And then suddenly, and Earth Wind of Fire, and suddenly in the 80s when all the music changed into synthesizers being used, I arrived here with my band and we were using synthesizers and I was allowed to go into the studios of my idols and write with them. So, yes, I think that you have to have a great awareness of how to read rooms, how to be with certain musicians and certain people. So it was a wonderful friendship for me. Now, what made you choose 
bass. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, you listen to some of the early music, and uh, I know you were a fan of Genesis and of some other bands. Was it the bass yeah. that was it the bass that you caught? Was it like you hearing, you know, a bassist playing, you went, I want to do that? Or what made you attracted to the bass? Because a lot of times when kids are younger, they're very attracted. Well, everyone wants to be the lead singer. But then they're attracted to the lead guitar or the drums because they just want to beat on stuff. And I always say a bass player, like the bass and the drums, and I'm a big baseball fan, it's like the middle infield. Without them, your team's falling apart. But a lot of people don't gravitate towards a bass. What made you choose the bass? Mm. You, you know, um, everything you say there really resonates with me because a rhythm section, the bass, I always saw the drummer and the bass player as the foundation of anything that was going to be really quite special. Also, you know, I was very attracted to be the drummer and a lead guitarist, as we all were, but when I tried it, I thought, hmm, not really very good at this. Um, so, <laughs> mm, maybe I should do something else. What's well, got four strings? Okay, a bass. Um, but I... As I said to you before, I was in in America at an early age, and I used to hear, but really when the bass guitar was really coming to the fore of music, Brothers Johnson, Graham Central Station, Verdine White, Weather, Earth, Wind and Fire, I was hearing this on the radio, and suddenly bass guitars were up front, and you had people like Bootsy Collins and Stanley Clark becoming gods and heroes of their instrument. And um, I just had a natural ear for bass on records, um, so if I heard a Motown record, I'd, be, I'd gravitate straight to the what I would call the legs of a song, the heart of a song. I would hear the pulse beat. Actually, the sexuality of a song to me was always what was underneath and what felt solid. And there's so much harmonic coming from a bass that is really centering where the songs are going to go that um, it, I just fell into that place where bass guitar became very, very important to me, very sexy guitar, it was, it was that time. Of course, as a young lad, there was the Beatles when I was in the 60s, um, so I was very aware, probably subconsciously, that Paul McCartney was playing some incredible bass lines. I seem to have had an all-round kind of education because at that same time I fell into, a little bit later, in, in love with progressive music and uh, Squire's bass playing with Yes and Mike Brotherford with Genesis. So. I, I just sort of honed in on that um, core of what I thought music was about. Even if I'm listening to a classical concert, I'm listening to the cellos and I'm listening to the low end. It just seems to resonate so much more in me and, and um, can be exciting bass because, as we know, in the 70s, the bass players were becoming very percussive and slapping. So suddenly the bass guitar was a, a drum as well. And then you go into the, mo the more melodic uh, places, as we said, with... Um, you know some of the great work from the, from the progressive bands and uh, and yes so uh, yeah bass became my love and still to this day um i'm attracted to it and still trying to get better on it well now you know you mentioned earlier you were the uh, captain of the soccer team and it seems like, yeah. you know that that's like an american kid being the captain of the football team it means you're good now was it i suppose so yeah was it hard <laughs> or, or, for you? or you got or you've got the loudest mouth on the field that's probably <laughs> it too <laughs> now now, was it hard for you to, I mean, what made you choose music over soccer? Did you, because they're both, they're both long shot careers. I mean, you know, it's, you know, your parents, yeah. people, parents don't go, oh yeah, my kid want to be a musician and a pro athlete. They're probably like, why can't he just say I want, he can be a salesman. I mean, what made you, what, yeah. what made you stop soccer? Did you just think you had a better run for your music? Well, um, I, I was born in a, um, lower middle class in Southampton so it was a council estate where all the kids basically were turned on by top of the pops music on on TV or playing sport football soccer and uh, it was a way of escaping out of that um, that lifestyle which would have been me working down the docks as a stevedore that's really what happened to us in secondary school and so the a huge attraction to us to escape the normality and the grayness of that kind of life was really pop music, which we saw on TV and we felt, and running out in the field and playing soccer. So from about 10 years old till 17, I was playing very serious soccer and I absolutely was addicted to it. I was lucky to be signed to Southampton as a semi-professional. I played for my county. I became captain of the teams, played for South of England schoolboys. So everybody thought that's what was going to happen. I was going to be a soccer player. And then around the time of 17, when I was traveling around with the team and going to London and everything, I found myself in the evening in these clubs, you know, in London and um, 
I started to hear Motown. Um, and, you know, like every kid at that time, I was dancing and looking for the girls, and we would play the soccer, then go to the clubs after, and slowly, everything I heard with music became very magical to me. It became like, this is a, this will go on forever, where soccer probably won't. You know, you're over at 27, you're over at 26, but with music, you know, you, you it, it's forever. It's what's in your heart and what's in your brain, and you don't have to rely on the physical side of things quite as much, so I sort of, Realized I wasn't going to be a brilliant soccer player and suddenly Motown and great uh, music and clubs took me over and I just thought this is where the magic is, you know, I'd be playing soccer for the team and then I'd be longing to go to the clubs after so I could hear some new music, you know, and um, feel the pulse of music. So around the age of 17, music seemed to me to be a long lasting magic and uh, soccer didn't quite hold me past that point. Now, when did you personally start playing the bass? Um, <laughs> I was a late starter, really. I suppose around 17 and 18, very late for, for a musician. Yeah, but I tended to just um, buy so many records. I was a huge record collector. I was an, a, an addict for buying 45 vinyl records, you know, the, the singles, and then the albums. And so... Um, around 17, with a vengeance, I just bought a bass guitar. My parents helped me get a bass guitar. And I, I sat in my, be in my bedroom for four years just playing every single record I ever bought, you know, from a, from a T-Rex record to The Who to Early Genesis to, um, you know, Funk and Stax and uh, Rufus Thomas. I would just sit there and just put the headphones on and play bass to it and try and figure out what I was hearing on the record. So around 17, I became an absolute um, record-aholic. I was just buying everything every week and playing, uh, learning it on the headphones, just sitting on the edge of the bed and trying to play. In a lot of ways, I felt like I was in each each band that I rehearsed to. I thought, now I'm in The Who, now I'm in The Beatles, now I'm in Genesis, now I'm in Funkadelic. Uh, it was, it was a, a great way for me to learn. I learned totally by ear and just by... Uh, by records. Now, now looking back, do you think? Uh, well, you know, in you've done well, so it doesn't make a difference. But do you wish sometimes that you had taken lessons, or do you think you learned so much more because you were just listening and learning it on your own? It's a great question, that um, mate. It's a great question. Hard to tell. You know, there's a real thin borderline between um, knowing too much and being excited by what you don't totally know but you instinctively feel in my heart I think I'm happy that I had to fight through not knowing much and having to learn you know what tuning was what scales were what um how uh, how to record in the studio I had to learn everything just through enthusiasm and in some ways I think that if if I'd known too much, I might have been more organized and more um, like this is the way it should be done. So in, in my heart, I think you have to, as, as you experiment, you learn anyway. And if you're mixing with tons of musicians and tons of producers, you just go, oh, I didn't know that. You know, I've been doing it this way. But I think what broke me through and made me have uh, this certain amount of success in all ways was my um, enthusiasm and my just turned on by the magic. And so you, you know, it's just like a kid when he gets his first guitar. There's something incredible about that. If you, if you organize that too much and make it a machine, you know, make it something that isn't magic, it doesn't actually become fun and you don't really sort of move on. So I think you, you learn as you go, but I think personally for me, the, um, the work I had to do to, to bring my standard up and to learn um, made a big difference to me. I was always a little bit free with my writing, always a little bit free with my with with, with my uh, musicianship. And I think in a lot of ways that is the spark that you get on some individual things. That's the spark you don't want to lose. So you, you're getting good. You're teaching yourself. When do you decide to sit there and say, I'm putting a band together? Um, I think I want to put a band together when I was three years old, you know, I mean, I was always, I was just, you know, the moment you, you get your first guitar and you can't even tune it up, you go, I need to be in a band. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it, it starts right from the beginning. I was in some really god awful bands in Southampton trying to play drums, trying to play guitar, trying to play anything, but you just wanted your mates around you. So I think, 
you know, it takes a little bit of time after you sit on the drums and go like, oh my God, I'm no good, but you've got four mates around you. So there's a lot to do with camaraderie and friendship. I've always wanted to be in a band. It's only the later years after I'd had a certain amount of success as a writer that I started to concentrate even more, even more on solitary writing and um, trying to develop my personal writing skill. But right from day one, when you see the Beatles on TV and you see this little gang, you want to be in that gang immediately. That's what you want. Probably more than even learning the music, you just want to be in that gang. Now, Q-Feel, you had some success with. How did that, how did you come up, how did you guys get together and then how did you decide what music you're going to play? Because it was back then the synthesizer was big. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it was in the uh, early 80s, and um, I was in a rock band playing live in London, and we were we were torn around, and we I had to audition to find some guitarists in this band. I, I'd been my musical director, and at that time in this rock band, I, I found Brian Fairweather, and my a Scottish guitarist, who came down to London to audition. We really hit it off. There was some magic between us, and we're still hang, we're working together now. There was something that really connected, and. Even though this rock band I was in in London called CMB was doing a little bit of business, I thought the success here is if we get a record deal ourselves, me and Brian, we just and we have to concentrate on our songwriting. So we just became real partners. We became like the Bugatti and Musker, you know, the Holland Dozier, Holland and McCartney and Lennon in our heads. We just thought it's going to be unison. You know, he's a great guitarist. I can handle the bass. We sing a little bit. We'd have to get ourselves a four-track, get into a little house and write some demos and then get a publishing deal. We didn't even know if we needed to get a record deal first or a publishing deal. We just thought if we're if we're lean and mean, two of us, and we write great songs, well, then we can form a band around the songs if we get signed. And QPhil came around that time when <clears throat> all the music was changing. There was Ultravox, there was Thompson Twins, there was Tom Dolby specifically influenced us a great deal. But as you can hear from our first QPhil single, which I think sold five copies in Paris and nowhere else, I think um, we were doing reggae ska music, and then that didn't do uh, didn't do anything. Within about ten minutes, we said, "No, we're a synthesizer band," <laughs> and we got we we got very attracted to the to this whole uh, mystery of synthesizers. I mean, we really suddenly thought, um, "In the Age of Wireless" by Tom Dolby was just so so magical. It was like a magical mystery tour for us with synthesizers that we thought this is where it's all going. And more and more, you were getting the New Order, the Ultravox, the uh, Thompson Twins, and we thought, this is speaking to us, you know. We put down our guitars and put down our basses, even though we knew we could get around that, and we just concentrated on getting a little Casio keyboard, a little four-track, maybe a very small rolling keyboard, and we did these demos. One of those demos in the 80s was Dancing in Heaven, uh, Orbital Bebop, and we took that to the record company, and <laughs> although we were a ska reggae band, they went like, hmm, they've changed. They're now electric, and uh, we put that single out. Again, it didn't do uh, anything in Europe, but it did really well in America, and it took off in um, L.A. here um, on K-Rock, the, the big radio station here. That brought me here with Brian, and that led that, that single, Dancing in Heaven, led to uh, all the American artists that we worked with after that, and I worked with, uh, showing interest in us. It was almost the passport into L.A., that record did a great deal for me. It was a very, very kind record to me. You no, know, you say when they showed interest. So you know, this record, people just took notice and said, "Did they want to come up? Did they want to collaborate with you because of your writing?" You know, or yeah, it, it, was, it, it really was the, the sound. You know, it was this was a this was a revolutionary sound in the eighties when Brian and I came into town. Although we loved Joni Mitchell and we loved the Eagles and everything, it was changing, and you could see that. Uh, all the record companies in LA, and I was very prepared to walk into all the doors of the record, record companies here. I'd done my homework, and every record company I got in, in through the door and started to talk to them. They were very interested in uh, in the way Brian and I saw our music. The, you know, and the charts were beginning to get dominated by this new sound. We were in town, and we knew a bit about it. And so all the, all the A&R men at the record companies put us with the people that wanted to change their sound. You had that, you had like Kim Carnes wanting to change, you had Earth, Wind and Fire that wanted to change, you had the Commodores wanting to change because this was a revolution in synthesizer music. And so I think even though our songs, there's no doubt you have to be able to write good songs, 
but at the same time, the sound we were we were making, the sound, you know, we were definitely using drum machines. We were definitely tr- pushing the edges of um, production in those days. And so, yeah, um, if we had crap songs, I don't think the A&R men would have probably given us a light of day, but a few of the songs we had, they went like, if we could get this kind of sound with our artists, which are a little bit stuck in the mud, you know, the sound is changing. They were they were brought up on a coup. I'm saying the artists at that time was still brought up on acoustic guitars and guitars in general. But here was this other thing where suddenly synthesizers were going to be and still are now, uh, as we can see in the charts. 80s was a very, very seminal change in 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 music. I believe our songs were strong. Otherwise, the A&R men wouldn't have seen the light of day. Um, and in fact, you know, the songs I wrote at that time we built the city in these dreams were synthesizer demos. And, they, in, a, and in a way, Steve, I was thinking they might be for my own band, Q-Feel. Um, but uh, luckily, um, other artists recorded them at that time in their own way, and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, I was going to say, well, you know, you're sitting out in L.A., and, you know, you know for, you know, we built the city in these dreams, you, you get paired up with Bernie Taupin, which... If you love music, and we all loved Elton John, we all had Saturday Nights All Right for Fighting. We loved that song. It was that one greatest yeah. hits album where he's wearing the white suit on the top with the hat. And oh yeah. Now for you, that has to be a little bit. Well, it's it's a huge honor, but it has to be a little bit intimidating to be working with a guy who has put out hit after hit. I mean, how did that collaboration between you two start? Well, again. It's that same thing I just said, you know, um, all, every, all the record companies wanted their artists to change their sound, and some of the publishers wanted their writers to also become turned on and move into a new area. So I was at um, Bernie Tolfin's publishing company, Chapel Music, playing some stuff, and they said, would you at all be interested in writing with Bernie Tolfin? You know, he's not working much at the moment, he's not really with Elton, and, and we'd like to get him involved in something fresh. And of course, as you just said, I grew up on Elton John, so um, Goodbye Elevate Road is one of you know is an album that I put in the top five. I'm a huge fan of Elton, so when this got put forward to me, I was like, "How strange! This is ridiculous. How am I catching up with Bernie Taupin and Elton John?" I'm you know this is these are my I, I do believe Elton is one of the most underrated popular songwriters of all time. Um, so, but really, if we talk about this this question, Steve, it's mainly mainly that um, they wanted Bernie to try something new. Um, he wasn't working with Elton that much, and so his publisher just said, "Would you would you fancy that?" Well, we met. I met up with Bernie. Yes, it it was like meeting, you know, one of the, one of the people that you'd grown up studying. You know, and I always knew that Bernie Taupin was a, a, an amazing. I had it. In my, I knew subconsciously that what I heard with Elton was that these lyrics were coming from another place altogether. Well, we we met in a restaurant. We sort of laughed together. No big deal. I think he was a bit tentative of working with me because I was a new kid in town and of course it wasn't anything like Elton's music so he said let me send you two lyrics and we'll, we'll test it out now as you know Bernie writes words ahead of time and I'd never done this before where you just take the lyrics and write it but I, I took to it like a duck to water it was beautiful the words were there and off I went the first two lyrics he sent me were we built this city uh, came through on my fax machine and then another song called boys in the mist um that was eventually became These Dreams. Boys in the Mist was a song he tested out on Stevie Nicks of, of Flute of Max. He didn't take it. And um, he gave me this and just said, just run with it, see what you feel. I bought myself a little eight-track eight Fostex home tape machine, and I went to work on those two songs. And in the bridge of Boys in the Mist, there was a, a lyric called These Dreams, and I was very nervous to ask Bernie, but I called him and said, do you mind if I move... Uh, these dreams in to be the chorus. How do you feel about that? And he, he hadn't even heard what I was doing. He said, no, Elton does that all the time, so go for it. So the first two songs we wrote were those two songs. I mainly wanted to impress Bernie so that he want to work with me again. And the two demos I did are very modern sounding for that time, very synthesizer-oriented. I saw these dreams as like a um, orchestra maneuvers in a dark song. And I saw We Built the City actually for my own band. It was, you know, a much darker demo I did. Very, very, uh, very funky. A little a different to what Starship eventually saw it as. But those were the two things that started us off. But to answer your question, I think even 
uh, publishers wanted their writers that were ensconced in Los Angeles to change their ways. So as a young writer coming into LA, they, they wanted to throw me with um, different people to see what if there were any of this... Uh, and you know, this new spark going to come about. That's how that began. Well, now, we built this city. When you guys wrote it together, you gave it to Starship. Did they do, did they tweak it, as you said? I mean, did they tweak it and change it a little for what they wanted? And did you have input in that? Or once they got the song, you guys weren't in the picture anymore? Well, no, it was, um, it was thrilling because Bernie and I had written these two songs and suddenly they were circulating around LA and, and the phone began to ring. You know, I think um, the motels wanted to do We Built the City at the beginning. There was some rumor of that. Um, Kim Carrion's wanted to do These Dreams. There was a lot, lot of activity. I was like, a, I think a lot because it was an inter- they were interesting songs, but there was Bernie Taupin's name there as a, as a lyricist. Um, so Starship, yes, they took the song. Um, I, I was working with their, their producer, Peter Wolf, at that time, doing other, doing Earth, Wind & Fire and Maurice White's solo record, and Peter used to always ask me for what I had new. So I gave him a cassette of We Built the City in These Dreams. And then he was about to uh, produce Starship, so he called me and said, we're going to do this song. I went, really? You know, I mean, I didn't think Starship would be in... But he was trying to change their sound somewhat. They then... My, my chorus uh, didn't keep repeating We Built the City. So they, they, they called and they asked us if they could uh, uh, extend the chorus. You know, We Built the City on Rock and Roll. We Built the City on Rock and Roll. They wanted to extend it. And uh, we said, well, this is our first ever cut with me and Bernie, and we agreed to it. We changed the percentages slightly on the writing so that it was mainly me and Bernie, but they tweaked the chorus to, to extend it. And off it went, you know. Um, they called me down the studio to hear it because they were so excited. They really thought they had a big record there. And I was so used to my demo, which was extremely funky and more Peter Gabriel in its vibe. I remember standing there and being thrilled that Bernie and I had a major cut, but still not thinking I liked it. I thought it was too uh, Germanic and stiff. Um, and so I was thrilled we got a cut, but I didn't really see it uh, how I imagined it being. Of course, you know, over the years it's become this this thing uh, and and so I've, I've got to understand it and love it for what it is and um, I'm very proud of how long it's it's uh, made its mark but yes they, they they tweaked it with these dreams they basically copied the demo totally when Hart did it um, if anything they did it even more simpler than my demo was because I'd made it a bit more sort of orchestra maneuvers and more produ- more production so um, I think in those days Steve, you're just happy that first two things I did with Bernie, everybody was, everybody was calling and saying, can we record it? And recording uh, Starship, they were so enthusiastic that they had another, a huge record on their hands. I didn't really know, you know. They, they, were, they were like, if we extend this chorus, would you mind? And I was like, no, 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 we're, we're just happy to go. I, I didn't really, we were just happy to get the ball rolling. That's how that happened. And then off it went, you know, and within about four weeks, it was uh, top of the charts. But even on my demo, which was on We Built the City, which was much more experimental, you know, I, I had a, I tuned into a radio just randomly and got that police report on the song, and I thought, well, that's better than the solo. That's more modern. Let's just put a policeman talking on the record, and then they eventually used a DJ, you know, on the record the same way I'd done it with a police report of a riot going on in in, in LA, and they changed that 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 uh, DJ's comment to every city in America so whenever that radio went out so it, it looked like it was going to be destined to communicate on a huge level which it did it is it became such a huge hit now as the writer for that there you know there's royalties you got to sit there and think that your life is changing yeah 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 it's uh, you know it's, un- it's unreal really Steve I mean you don't you know you're you, as I said before, when we started this interview, you, you're you're thrilled and you're naive at the same time because you're doing something you love. And then all of a sudden, you're within six months. I had two number ones in America. Um, I started to bubble. We hit the top forty. Brian and I with Kim Carnes. Our song start. My song started to bubble and start to make moves. But with me and Bernie, we sat down for six months and had two number ones. It was really quite unreal. And your your life changes. Um, but at the same time, you're still, you know, you're, um, 
you're, you are the same creature. You are the same person who still writes 30 songs that nobody likes, and you write two that they do. You just carry on. And then all of a sudden you think, I'm, I'm, I'm good at the moment. I'm beginning to get the feel of this, and I'm beginning... And, and you know, with Bernie particularly, it was half of my job was already done. I mean, the lyric was there. I, I played it, put it on the piano, played it, did it on the synthesizers, not always knowing exactly what Bernie meant, as Elton did. But you do it because you... Um, not because you think you're going to be number one. I never have. I've never never written to have a, in, in a lot of sense, to, to hit the charts. I mean, I like to keep that awareness. So, you know, some of the best songs that you really put all your heart into don't see the light of day, and some that you may not have felt as strong about, they start to do very, very well. So I think it's just your life changes, but in some kind of way, I'm sure many other writers and performers would say it, you don't really feel you've changed because your love is to still go in the studio the next day and write another song. You know, you don't stop and go, there we are, all done, lovely. You're, um, you're moving on all the time because it's your, um, it's your love, it's your desire, it's, and you're addicted to it. Yes, life did change, and you you suddenly phone starts to ring, and people give <laughs> people will send cars to pick you up and things. So you go like, ah, oh, something's changed, and it's a beautiful thing because you all your life you're working to make maybe one or two or three songs, let people know that, that this is what you do, and in a lot of ways, um, those hit songs. Um, allow you more freedom you know as you work with people and you get more respect um so but really in my heart i don't think i've ever changed it you know it's lovely and you feel it you get a tingle but it's still quite unreal you know well it's you know but you but we built the city was so big and then it, it got parodied i believe in in england yeah yeah it did it did it's uh i had my first number one in england um at Christmas last year, yeah, I just couldn't believe it. It's been three um, three generations of people have made this song a, a, a massive hit in England. It was number one, parried a parried by, by a uh, I think his name his name was Lad Baby, and he's a YouTube celebrity, and he did this single for a charity, and he changed uh, my music wasn't changed at all. I mean, they basically copied the music, but they did change the lyrics too. We built this city on sausage rolls. And I went like, hmm, usually, because We Built the City gets cut a lot for movies and adverts and things. My manager sent me, send it to, send it to me just before Christmas and said, do you agree with this? And I said, if Bernie does, I do. Because they haven't changed my music, but it's down to Bernie. Well, Bernie went with it. And um, I didn't think much of it at all. I just thought, well, that's cute. And then my, a cousin of mine suddenly said, do you see that you're just about to go number one in England? And I just couldn't believe it, you know, and... You know, the Christmas number one in England is always a huge thing. It's very, very special to England. They um, they do betting on it. They take it very serious. It's written down in the Hall of History for England. You know, that, that, that all the number ones at Christmas in England are, are sort of stamped into a gold platter kind of thing. And suddenly on the day of Christmas Day... Um, Everybody in England, and I saw some incredible film of people, you know, around the Christmas table singing "We Built This City." I mean, it was, and I'd that. So it was, you know, my first number one in England. Uh, "We Built the City" had been top twenty something like two or three years ago. Before that, with a advert of, uh, for a telephone company, and before that, I think it reached twelve with Starship, right, thirty years before. So it's very strange to have a, a number one you know, uh, 30 years again later, um, and that it's all young kids that are four or five years old singing your song. They're even singing We Built the City at the soccer crowds in England in the Premiership, and that was a big deal to me because I grew up through soccer. But, uh, and in England, it hasn't got, We Built the City hasn't got the notoriety of what it got here, where they would be trying to pan it and say, Starship selling out and all that stuff. In England and in Europe, they look at it as a, just as a song for what it is. Um, so I was incredibly proud that years later it went number one again and I was very I felt very blessed to be able to see that, that over three generations that song has touched young people every every time it's come around so very proud of that well now as a musician and as you know you had you know your own songs back I mean you eventually did some solo albums but when you when these songs were coming out and Starship was hitting it and then uh, these dreams was hitting it was there something inside you that said you know I should I should have recorded this myself, or was that never in question? Yeah, yeah, it was there. You know, it's it's funny. Um, 
obviously I started start in a band with Q-Field, you know, and, but then when I came to LA, I just thought, this is fantastic, everybody likes my songwriting, and, and there's a lot to learn here, I want to be a very good songwriter, I want to be an all-rounder, I want to be able to write lots of different kinds of music, and, I, and, I, and after we built the city in these dreams, um, some great English bands came to work with me, um, Go West from England, and we wrote King of Wishful Thinking and Faithful together, and I did some work with Paul Young, and it was lovely, you know, because I thought, oh, this, this, you know, I'm touching my R&B, I'm touching my pop roots, I'm still able to do um, deep, deeper stuff if I want to. And around that time, I was also put with Robbie Robertson of the band um, fame when he was making his solo record. And um, again, I was put with him to sort of, I think, modern up the day and all that stuff. And I wrote Fallen Angel with him, which Peter Gabriel sang with him on. And... Um, during that period with Robbie Robertson, I would be bringing in my demos for him to, uh, when I was trying to prepare ideas for him. And he just kept on saying to me, you know, you've got a sound in your voice. You've got a something to say. And um, I sort of put that to, on, on the side, really, anything solo, because I didn't. I was enjoying my life and it was very busy writing for everybody and learning. And he said, but you really need to make a solo record. Well, um, my manager also, Diane Poncher, had been saying, there'll be a time when you want to do it. I think by working with Robbie Robertson and with Earth, Wind and Fire at the same time, Maurice White, both of them, Maurice White and Robbie, sort of pushed me towards saying, you have something to say and you need to do something for yourself. So seeing Robbie Robertson doing his album with Daniel Lemoyne at the at the village and just being, you know, concentrating on that, I put a, a major studio in my garage and decided to, uh, to make a record at home. And to do it the way I wanted. I was old in the tooth. I wasn't a young guy coming out, so I was already had that kind of experience, and I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a, a very spiritual record. And from that, um, I wrote a, an album called In the House of Stone and Light and signed to Mercury Records, and that song did very, very well for me back then in the 90s. Um, I was encouraged to do that, and I did it on my own terms. I didn't... I didn't I knew I, I wanted to do a record that felt like me and not, oh, here comes a songwriter, you know, he's going to make his record and try and have a few hits. I was determined because of my work with Maurice White and Bernie Taupin and Robbie to make a record that I thought, ah, it's me. This is what I pull off well. This is how I sing. I care about this. It has Gaelic. It has folk. It has funk. It has all these different things which I love. And I could, for the first time, write lyrics, lyrics that I really cared about, which were about... Um, restoration of your, your spirit and your soul. I needed to do that. I needed to write about the ups and downs of life from the South. You may only get one chance to make a record, do it on your own terms and don't get manipulated. I was lucky the record company stayed away from me. It didn't hound me. And I was able to put out the album I wanted. Quite surprised that the single, well it took a year but it, it became huge uh, the actual single from the album. And I was very fortunate, Steve, on that album to have all the people that I'd helped in the past as a songwriter so Phil Collins played the drums we had a great Scottish band called Blue Nile PJ the keyboard player he got involved great guitarist Bill Dillon that I'd met with um, Robbie Robertson uh, Russell Broom that I'd met on the road playing um, Jack Hughes and Wang Chung everybody came around me to help me with these songs and I made it at home um, uh, so yeah, I, I and that's and that led me on from that point on to still put out my solo records, even on my own on my own label now, my own small little independent label. I still continually um, like to put out my own books, my own my own albums. Um, I'm still a creature of that era from the '70s when people made albums, and uh, I see them as little books. I see them of, as um, movies. And so uh, from around the 90s on, I was allowed to <laughs> make a solo record and they can't stop me still doing it. So I'm off. I'm still doing it. Now, were you still writing for other people when you were doing your solo album? I was, but not as much. You know, um, I would. Uh, I took, it takes quite a bit of um, focus to make solo records. And I'd, I felt a little bit luxurious in the sense that um, I'd done well with these hit records, and I felt like if ever there was a time I, ha I could um, concentrate on what I really wanted to write for myself, you know, what I really cherished. Um, and I, it sounds corny, but I wanted to do much more intimate and personal uh, records, and I wanted to write my own lyrics. I wanted to sing in a certain way. Um, I did every now and then uh, write with other people when it felt right, but also what was quite... Um, fascinating to me is my 
my own little solo record called In the Temple of the Muse that I put out on my own label, a good 10 years after House of Stone and Line. Um, about four, it got cut, four songs on that album got cut by other people, which was just really quite encouraging to me. Um, Robbie Williams did a song called The Long Walk Home, and um, uh, we had Starship again did a, a song called Every, uh, Everything You Do, uh, Karma. They, uh, they cut that for their greatest hits. And Elaine Page cut a song called Me, Me Morena, as did Josh Groban. And I thought, how strange, you know, I'm not running these songs, I'm not pushing anymore, but people were hearing my solo records and uh, these little independent things I would do at home, and I'm still able to get some lovely cuts from them. Um, so, yeah, it, it sort of carried on, not as quite as intense as I was, where the door was always swinging every day in the studio and somebody else would be coming in to work with me. I did tend to focus after House of Stone and Light much more, much more on what I wanted to say. And I felt the luxury, because of the other hits, to say, well, I don't always need to have that. I now have a little bit of a bed of security to try and make my own uh, strong solo records. Now, but between your solo records, there's a lot of time. What did you do between in that time? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I look. It's like you look at your thing. I go, yeah. wait a second. You know, I mean, I know you're still writing, but it's like, yeah. weren't you? Didn't you have a burning inside to sit there after you know, in the house of stone and light to sit there and go, ah, man, I'm gonna record another. I'm gonna record another album. I mean, well, I actually did, Steve. I actually uh, jumped straight in and I recorded. Actually, what became in the Temple of the Muse, I had uh, me, Moraine, and a few other very strong songs building. And actually, Mercury Records came to me to hear the next record, you know, and they were like, this is great, fantastic, off you keep going. And then Mercury Records folded, and uh, all the funding was out of uh, out of anything they were reco recording then. And they dropped major artists all in a row, even though they had said, you know, we want, it, we want this to go on. There was a major change. So I just thought, hmm. You know, this is what it is to be with a major label. You don't know where you are. I mean, I, my A&R man had been fired two years before. The uh, ex main executives of Mercury, every time they came to see me, it was somebody different. And so I just thought, hmm, that that's, that's tough. Um, that wasn't enjoyable. I just recorded half of a new album and everything just stopped. I could have had the greatest album of all time there. And because of politics, I wouldn't have, got, I wouldn't have had a chance to get it out. Luckily, you know, I think it... I was reminded at the time, like 10 years later, I did piece it all together again and actually start to put out, uh, I put that record out 10 years later. The 10 years in between that, I carried on working, but I thought, I don't enjoy the politics of this and I'll write for other people and I, I'll tinker away. And um, I think also I wanted to feel a little bit about what life was without me continually sat in the studio all the time. Um, I thought, well, if there's ever a time for me to take a step back, my parents, um, were, uh, passed away during that period of, after House of Stone and Light. That was major to me. And um, and I thought I need a little bit more dis um, development as a human being. I'm always sat in the studio plugging in a guitar. I'd like to sense, I'd like to travel, I'd like to read some more books, I'd like to feel something that isn't just the next song. I'm, I've never been a person, thank God, that has not been able to write a song a day kind of thing. And that, after a while, is it's wonderful, but at the same time, you go, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years. And um, there was that time, and I'd let go a little bit of saying, oh, there'll be another record, you know, I, I, who cares? I've done a really good job, and I'll see where everything goes in the future. Then, um, with digital coming in, and everybody saying, you can fund this yourself, you can put your albums on CD Baby, you can have your own label. A lot of the young engineers that were working with me and have been on the road with me said, why don't you do this? It's easy. And I said, that can't be that easy. But they said, it is. And so, yes, that, that 10 years, it seemed like five years to me. I put out another record. And now I've been very fortunate to put out a record nearly every year. And I've been able to do the kinds of things I want to um, with those albums and change my style and whatever. But it was a long time in between that period. But I, I, I would probably put it down to now a time of um, reflection Well, now, you know, you said during that time your parents passed away, it was very hard on you, you traveled. Did you feel in that time when you were, you know, before your next album, which you already had half of, did you feel that your writing style was changing? Um, it's, 
that's a really hard question. It really, it's a great question, but it's a hard question. Um, things change. You know, I'm very fortunate to have been doing, you know, 40 years of writing. It's not many... If we look back to artists in their prime, they don't get this length of time. I think I'm very grateful to see a song I wrote 30 years ago still do go number one in England 30 years later. So I'm very aware of the mortality here. But songs, um, I think you do change. Isn't it? You know, I could really... I think you do. I mean, vocally, your emotions change. Um, you have to be... Um, I was recently working with Ray Parker again from Ghostbusters days, and we were both saying, you know, it's not easy to get your tempos up, you know, to get the energy going because we're very, we've set into this mid place of beauty. I know for myself, as a songwriter, I, 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 I was became more aware of harmonic and chordal and um, melodic sense as I went into the uh, end of the '90s, and then I've sort of stayed in that place where I really wanted to feel very, very close to emotion um and also that's why i could sum this up is you, you change in what you what you listen to a great deal you know in the later years i was beginning to understand classical much better i was beginning to understand jazz better i was beginning to feel other things which was very exciting because you know when you're a kid you're locked into one thing it's a big buzz and then you get to doing it for 40 years and you start saying well what else is there for me to, to turn me on and that used and that led me towards experimental music um jazz classical and uh i started to find a whole new uh, way of listening to music around that time i think you do change i don't i don't think it's i think you do change but every now and then when you write something you go oh that's me that's me that's me that's that, that's definitely where i come from and i think as you get older you have to like any discipline maybe push yourself in some areas where you're beginning to become a little bit blind in or beginning to be, you know, uh, to slow down on. So you have to say, need to listen to more what's happening now, need to understand more technology, need to hear what's really buzzing now, need, need to go deeper into music. So I do think you change. Uh, obviously your voice changes, you know, your octaves come down and, and, you, have, and you sing differently. Um, I, my range is not as high, but I'm much more a, a, a richer and an emotional singer than I've ever been. So. You sort of, yes, you mold, you change, you, um, and I think if you want to be, uh, still revere your art, I think you've got to stay on top of yourself even more as you get an older songwriter. You have to say, we need to be charged up here, what's going on? We can't settle into something that, um, that is easy. We need to uh, challenge ourselves a little bit. And I, I do try to challenge myself a bit because I'm quite aware of how we physically, mentally change over, over the years. Some things are for the better, and it's amazing. I've written more emotional music that I never thought I could have accomplished ever. Some of my songs now I couldn't have written when I was 21. And some of the songs I wrote when I was 23 and 25, I couldn't write now. Um, but there is a stream that is you that runs through everything. Now, for you these days, because they said, you know, when you were with, uh, when you wrote those songs with Bernie, he would uh, send you, you know, the chorus and you would do the music. When you write now, do you do the music first, do you do the lyrics, or do you do them together? It all comes in absolutely different ways. I've often thought about that. Um, it comes in very, very strange ways. Um, in, in general, I tend to sit down at a keyboard and I start to play. Um, with drum of the drum rhythm and I start to sing phonetically. I make noises. I will just go outside my, my head with muse with, with singing. And it hasn't got to be words. It has to be sound and you're away. And you go like, okay, where where is this leading me? Um, and then other times I can just be reading a book and I can see a title and I just write that title down and say, that is a wonderful picture. I need to write something around that. Um, sometimes I'll just do the music and I'll be playing it in the car and suddenly I'm singing a melody on top of what we've we'll, we'll done. It starts from all different ways. With Bernie, it was a methodical way. The lyrics were already written. They came to me. I just And he's such a rhythmic writer and such a a writer of understanding how songs progress. You basically put them up on your music stand and, and um, you can usually tell when you look at a lyric, you know, where it's coming from. When we built this city, I could see that Bernie was pushing in a quite in a, uh, quite a contemporary and aggressive way. I don't know if he would have given that lyric to Elton. It definitely shows signs that he was putting an edge into his writing, knowing that he was working with me. Um, 
And so, um, yes, with Bernie, it was like, when's the next lyric coming? I've still got a folder with, with loads of lyrics in that he gave me because we were just writing a, a song every three days. Um, but then on my own, it's a matter of what pulls me towards the writing process. Um, but usually it's putting my hands down onto a keyboard or a guitar and rambling like a madman. You know, you just go for it. And uh, sometimes it can be a rhythm on a drum machine. I'm, I always classed myself quite lucky that I came to the 80s because I was, we learned about technology as writers, you know. Um, we learned how drum machines work. We learned now, because we were te technically uh, ahead at those times, how to use Pro Tools now and all the different software. And I did notice that through the 80s, who, the, the, the uh, songwriters that understood technology and who could get around the studio on their own, you know, program a track, uh, understand what reverbs were, mix a track. Get, I think those were the writers that survived. You know, there was that era when a lot of the songwriters and performers um, that were based on acoustic guitars and a piano, they were being left behind. Um, so I, I, did, I do feel very fortunate that I came through the 80s when uh, you're able to plug a drum machine in it and you have an orchestra at your hands with a synthesizer. And I think that's what gave me such longevity. I could go right through the 80s, the 90s, and up to now, still with a, my, with a sense that I understood what the technology was doing to music in the studios. The writers that didn't bother to learn that... Um, in many cases struggled, and many of the artists did as well. So I think being an all-rounder, for me personally, was um, a, a huge strength. I could jump in and, and into many colors, into many clothes straight away and understand what the engineer did, what the vocalist did, what the horn players did, uh, and how, and, uh, and how on, on tape, how we dealt with it, and now on digital, how we dealt with it. So I think that was just such a lucky time, you know, um, if you were an artist that came through just based on acoustic guitars, when the 80s hit, it was a very difficult time for them. So, so the old, being an all-rounder seemed to be a very useful thing for me. Now, you earlier said how you, you, know, you, you love albums. And so when you do your solo albums, do you... No, do you know how you want those songs to go? Because that was the one thing I love about albums is there's an order of a song and there's a certain rhythm and you enjoy that. You know, I I've been I have Amazon Alexa and I have play I pay for the unlimited music and I'll just listen yeah. to some albums and you know I'm a I mean I was listening to um, Lou Reed uh, Transformer the yeah. other day and it's yeah, just yeah, yeah it's so great because the songs just go together even though they're so different. Yeah. For you, when you put your albums together, do you follow that? Do you sit there and go, okay, I really need to move these around until it sounds right to you? Or you just say, I'm oh, putting yeah. these. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the Bible to me. You know, that, that's what an album is. It's, an, it's a movie. It starts, there's a middle, there's a beginning, there's an end, there's a, there's a, there's a road to take, there's, a, there's an emotional context to it. It's like listening to a great classical concert. It's very, very important how you take the person on the journey. And I spent ages on that. Um, yes, ever so important. It's a book. You know, it's a chapter. You don't just throw it all together and hope that it's fixed together. You can miss uh, the highlights of what's really, really important if you... And that's why I live a long time with, uh, uh, with albums as I'm putting them together. I do, I'm still quite long on that because I think... You know, you, you get a sense of where the journey's going to be, where the road's going to be. And I'm used, now I'm really quite quick at knowing after I've written 15 songs of saying, I know this is the last song on the album. I know this is a third way in, and this is definitely the beginning. And this could be song six or seven. This is the beauty of albums, which we tend to have lost now, because as you say, we just stream. And so um, block it, blocks of songs together, which to me are still so important. If you listen to Hard Day's Night, you know it's there. You know it's happening there. You know there's a thing. It's not just one song after another. Um, it's, there's an entity, and we have lost that because of technology. You know, technology is good, but it's, uh, it le leads us fast in some, to some directions, but also leaves behind some things which were quite golden and quite special. And so you, I spend a very long time on the theme, thematic sense of an album, because I still, um, I like to hear different tracks all playing against each other and listen to the radio, fine, great. But every now and then I'm looking for that artist. You know, I want, I want to hear what 
how Coldplay saw their whole thing. I still want to hear how Paul McCartney structures his album. I still want to hear how the classics uh, writers like Elton want to, how they see their music. And as you say, with Lou Reed and Transformers, it's not just thrown together. That is put together like a building. That's a different floor every time you go up. You know, it's a level. Um, and you, and it's a great skill in knowing. If a person loves your music, if they love the artistry, like a Joni Mitchell or whatever, they will sit with that music and they will want to engage with the spirit of the writer and the artist and the vocalist. They'll want to go into that forest with that person. So um, I know it's not the era of the album, but once it's ingrained in me, I, I cannot never do that. It's, it's the way I see things. I can almost be writing 30 songs and out of those 30 songs, I'll listen to them, they're all different stars, but I go, that one works with that one, that one works with that one, that one doesn't, that one works with that. You can feel a color, just like <laughs> a lady will get dressed up, how she sees her shoes, how she sees her dress, how she sees her hair. It's the same way I see an album. Now, are you writing for anybody else these days or are you just really concentrating on your own? Um, I'm writing for anybody who wants to cut any of my songs. <laughs> They're all here if you want them. No, I, no I'm concentrating mainly on my... my I'm, I'm a bit of a... I'm under uh, high speed at the moment because I've got five albums going on at the same time. I'd have thought I would have slowed down. But um, no, I'm writing mainly for myself. I think other people could cut the hell out of these songs I'm writing because, you know, I'm a child of the 70s, so one of my songs will sound, uh, you know, like uh, James Brown and another one will sound um, like U2 or Coldplay or whatever's going on there. It's all that, you know, it's the way you interpret it. So um, I don't write in one particular style. Um, what makes it my style is I, I sing it and that's my voice that makes it that, I suppose. But I've got about five albums on the go. One very, very big record has taken me two to three years because I wanted, I found some very, very special songs about a uh, two years ago um, for different reasons. Um, musicians came around me again that were on the House of Stone and Light record. And um, I had a drummer that played on the House of Stone and Light called Jimmy Copley. And, and I prepared these songs thinking he would play on them again. And unfortunately, he passed away. But during that period, the songs I were writing were very, very spiritually charged. And a lot of the musicians that were back with me then came about again, Jack Hughes, Neil Taylor, um, the Blue Nile guys, everybody seemed to appear. Uh, even my old drummer, Jimmy, uh, Trevor Thornton from Qfield, he was there. So suddenly this became a live record and um, it's become quite a glorious big record, um, which I'm actually working on now as we speak to you. I've just come away from the studio and Ray Parker uh, has played guitar on two of the tracks. Uh, we got together again after reuniting because of Ghostbusters. We've got some uh, Gary Meek playing some amazing horns on a song uh, called Little Bird, which is ever so funky. And then we've got, I uh, just had a South African choir um, sing to a, the last song on this album. So this is a massive project for me because I haven't done this for many years where the, all the musicians or the live players or the drums or the orchestration. Uh, in between that, I've written a very, very intimate record that I'm very excited about. It comes out in, in September called Fugitive Pieces, and that's just me at the piano for three weeks. I just wrote a song a day, and my life came out onto that record, and my manager wants that out for sure because it's very <clears throat> very intimate and different. And then around the back of that, um, I'm doing an, another instrumental record because I made an instrumental record last year, and there's a reggae album and there's a folk album. So, yes, it's, uh, it's going on faster than it did before in the past, but... Um, I'm very lucky that, I, that, I'm, that this, I, I'm still creative, you know, so few things bubbling all at the same time. I don't think I've ever had so much going on at the same time. Um, and we're still, you know, some, a lot of my songs are being used for movies. And um, I'm writing songs for my first band again, Q-Field, because Brian Fairweather and Trevor Thornton from the band are back with me. And um, there was news of maybe possibly our first Q-Field record was going to be broke out again because of what it was in the 80s. It was a sort of seminal kind of record at that time. And so we're back doing that as well. So many hats, but um, it keeps me alive, no doubt about that. It's awesome, man. You know, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, um, Martin. It was a pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks. And, um, your, I appreciate that. Your webpage is martinpage.com. And people go to the webpage, you know, listen to his well, music. The best thing 
going to go too steep. That's going to go too is because I've just got a, basically a page up for that which just guides people. But my Facebook page is run by um, a lady called Vanessa, and she's been a fan for years, and she keeps that bubbling. So if people really want to see what's going on now and where I'm rolling, it'd be best to go to uh, Facebook, Martin Page at Facebook. So people, go to Facebook. But you know what you can do? You can go to my website and listen to past episodes. I have over 700 of them at coopertalk.net. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter, at CooperTalk, Instagram, at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.